Welcome to the Experts in Dubai show, your home for deeper news, behind the scenes and real life stories. Welcome to the Experts in Dubai show. I am Amber Wahid and today we are continuing with part two of Maria's story. In the last episode of Behind the Scenes, Maria shared her life of living with abuse, which started at the beginning of her marriage and continued throughout the pandemic. The pandemic actually made matters worse as the family were reduced to living in one room as Maria lost her job and eventually her home. She then found out her husband was cheating on her with her own cousin. Thoughts of taking her own life had led her to feel a surreal amount of peace and a sense of happiness she had not felt for many, many years, an opportunity to finally end all of her suffering, her pain, her mental exhaustion, the never-ending worry that she couldn't provide for her two young children. On one afternoon, after she fed her children and put them down to nap, she went to her balcony on the 12th floor of her apartment. But as she stood facing down to the ground below, she was interrupted by her baby son, who cried out to her. He needed her. Her mother's instinct made her go back to her room to attend to her child, and she realized she couldn't leave them. And she never again thought of taking her own life. That decision, not to exist, not to end her life, actually gave her a lot of strength. And for the first time in years, she said she slept the whole night. She realized she needed help for her kids' sake. And now she was ready to talk. Because she didn't have any money, she struggled to find a counselor. How are you going to pay us? They asked her. No one was prepared to help her for free. Finally, she found someone who was prepared to evaluate her in the first instance. In that first meeting, they diagnosed Maria as suffering from anxiety and depression. But she was still not ready to talk about the abuse behind the scenes back home. She knew the second meeting was going to probe deeper into a situation. So she didn't turn up. It was around this time that she came across a Facebook group, a strictly private group about domestic abuse victims and survivors, all from different nationalities and backgrounds. She read all their stories and she realized she was not alone and that she's a typical domestic abuse victim. She feels a shift in energy. And then one day she finally snapped against her husband. He first hit her younger son and then minutes later pushed her eldest son so hard he fell over. Her husband had been abusing her for years and she did nothing. She made excuses for him. But the minute he raised his hand to her kids, she fights back. Now her neighbours, the people who she was staying with, heard the verbal abuse being directed to her. They were horrified and they supported her. She went to the police. And it's here she learned something else. Her husband had discovered their eldest child had known of his affair with her cousin, and he had been threatening and blackmailing him. Here's how. If you have to be a proper person and you talk to me nicely, because if you don't, I have intimate photos and videos with me, and I can post it on social medias that you have, and all the web the porn sites and he assures he can do that because he's a tech person and he knows how to actually he has all the passwords on my social media he can access that 
Maria is in the process of a legal and custody battle with her husband. She has given social services the instruction to transfer her case to the local court for a divorce. Her husband is currently in jail for a series of offences and incriminating evidence, and he can't leave the country or be deported until his outstanding debts are paid, so he's essentially trapped in Dubai right now. Maria was able to end her crazy story by breaking the silence. Today she has found a job and she is with her children. She's getting her life back together and it's a road and she's taking each day as it comes. And she hopes in time to be in a position to help others. But first she knows she has to work on herself. But she took the first step and broke the silence. Maria was mistaken into thinking she was unique and alone in this situation. She's not. One in three women experienced domestic abuse at some point in her life. Back to my question. Why do abusers stay? And the other question. Why don't they just leave? Maria could have left any time. A woman called Leslie answers those questions for us as she shares her story with us and her message to us all. I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard College. I'd moved to New York City for my first job as a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. I had my first apartment, my first little green American Express card. I don't look like a typical domestic violence survivor. I have a BA in English from Harvard College, an MBA in marketing from Wharton Business School. I spent most of my career working for Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett, and The Washington Post. So my first message for you is that domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. It's everywhere. And my second message is that everyone thinks domestic violence happens to women, that it's a women's issue. Not exactly. Over 85% of abusers are men. And domestic abuse happens only in intimate, interdependent, long-term relationships. In other words, in families. The last place we would want or expect to find violence. Which is one reason domestic abuse is so confusing. I would have told you myself that I was the last person on earth who would stay with a man who beats me. But in fact, I was a very typical victim because of my age. I was 22. And in the United States, women ages 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be domestic violence victims as women of other ages. And over 500 women and girls this age are killed every year by abusive partners, boyfriends and husbands in the United States. I was also a very typical victim because I knew nothing about domestic violence, its warning signs or its patterns. I met Connor on a cold, rainy January night. He sat next to me on the New York City subway and he started chatting me up. He told me two things. One was that he, too, had just graduated from an Ivy League school and that he worked at a very impressive Wall Street bank. But what made the biggest impression on me that first meeting was that he was smart and funny, and he looked like a farm boy. He had these big cheeks, these big apple cheeks and this wheat blonde hair, and he seemed so sweet. One of the smartest things Connor did from the very beginning was to create the illusion that I was the dominant partner in the relationship. He did this, especially at the beginning, by idolizing me. 
We started dating, and he loved everything about me. That I was smart, that I'd gone to Harvard, that I was passionate about helping teenage girls and my job. He wanted to know everything about my family and my childhood, my hopes and dreams. Connor believed in me as a writer and a woman in a way that no one else ever had. And he also created a magical atmosphere of trust between us by confessing his secret, which was that as a very young boy starting at age four, he had been savagely and repeatedly physically abused by his stepfather. And the abuse had gotten so bad that he had had to drop out of school in eighth grade, even though he was very smart. And he'd spent almost 20 years rebuilding his life, which is why that Ivy League degree and the Wall Street job and his bright, shiny future meant so much to him. If you had told me that this smart, funny, sensitive man who adored me would one day dictate whether or not I wore makeup, how short my skirts were, where I lived, what jobs I took, who my friends were, and where I spent Christmas, I would have laughed at you. Because there was not a hint of violence or control or anger in Connor at the beginning. I didn't know that the first stage in any domestic violence relationship is to seduce and charm the victim. I also didn't know that the second step is to isolate the victim. Now, Connor did not come home one day and announce, you know, hey, this, all this Romeo and Juliet stuff has been great, but I need to move into the next phase where I isolate you and I abuse you. So I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and coworkers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening and he told me that he had quit his job that day, his dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me. Because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of the city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family and move to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York. And my, my dream job but I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed, and I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. As soon as we moved to New England, you know that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe? He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed. And the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. 
And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream. And he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the ten bruises on my neck had just faded, and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were going to live happily ever after. Because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never going to hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach, and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic, and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. I was mistaken in thinking that I was unique and alone in this situation. One in three American women experiences domestic violence or stalking at some point in her life. And the CDC reports that 15 million children are abused every year. 15 million. So actually, I was in very good company. Why did I stay? The answer is easy. I didn't know he was abusing me. Even though he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview, I never once thought of myself as a battered wife. Instead, I was a very strong woman in love with a deeply troubled man, and I was the only person on earth who could help Connor face his demons. The other question everybody asks is, why doesn't she just leave? Why didn't I walk out? I could have left any time. To me, this is the saddest and most painful question that people ask, because we victims know something you usually don't. It's incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser, because the final step in the domestic violence pattern is kill her. Over 70% of domestic violence murders happen after the victim has ended the relationship, after she's gotten out, because then the abuser has nothing left to lose. Other outcomes include long-term stalking, even after the abuser remarries, denial of financial resources, and manipulation of the family court system to terrify the victim and her children, who are regularly forced by family court judges to spend unsupervised time with the man who beat their mother. And still we ask, why doesn't she just leave? I was able to leave because of one final sadistic beating that broke through my denial. I realized that the man who I loved so much was going to kill me if I let him. So I broke the silence. I told everyone. The police, my neighbors, my friends and family, total strangers. And I'm here today because you all helped me.
We tend to stereotype victims as grisly headlines, self-destructive women, damaged goods. The question, why does she stay, is code for some people for it's her fault for staying. As if victims intentionally choose to fall in love with men intent upon destroying us. I have heard hundreds of stories from men and women who also got out, who learned an invaluable life lesson from what happened, and who rebuilt lives, joyous, happy lives, as employees, wives, and mothers, lives completely free of violence, like me. Because it turns out that I'm actually a very typical domestic violence victim and a typical domestic violence survivor. I remarried a kind and gentle man. We have three kids. I have that black lab, and I have that minivan. What I will never have again, ever, is a loaded gun held to my head by someone who says that he loves me. Now, right now, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating, or wow, how stupid was she? But this whole time, I've actually been talking about you. I promise you, there are several people listening to me right now who are currently being abused, or who were abused as children, or who are abusers themselves. Abuse could be affecting your daughter, your sister, your best friend right now. I was able to end my own crazy love story by breaking the silence. I'm still breaking the silence today. It's my way of helping other victims. And it's my final request of you. Talk about what you heard here. Abuse thrives only in silence. You have the power to end domestic violence simply by shining a spotlight on it. We victims need everyone. We need every one of you to understand the secrets of domestic violence. Show abuse the light of day by talking about it with your children, your coworkers, your friends and family. Recast survivors as wonderful, lovable people with full futures. Recognize the early signs of violence and conscientiously intervene, de-escalate it, show victims a safe way out. Together, we can make our beds, our dinner tables, and our families the safe and peaceful oases they should be. If you have any questions about today's episode, please do reach out to us at businesssculpting.com forward slash contact us or email info at businesssculpting.com.